This is The Real Story from the BBC. I'm Ritala Shah with your weekly deep dive into a story that's making news and changing lives. And ten weeks after a coup in Myanmar, popular protests against the military's power grab continue. But so too does the army's violent and often lethal effort to shut them down. Some sheltered behind makeshift barriers in their neighbourhoods, but the gunfire at times appeared relentless. They didn't have to kill, they didn't have to shoot a single shot. People were about to disperse, but they did anyway. A seven-year-old girl has been shot dead in Mandalay, becoming the youngest victim of the crackdown. They went upstairs and asked, who else is in this house? When nobody opened the door, my dad replied, no one else, that's all. They said, don't lie. And they fired gunshots while my sister was sitting against my dad's chest. They brutally shot a seven-year-old child. And with more than 700 people killed since the start of February, the UN this week issued a warning. The High Commissioner fears that the situation in Myanmar is heading towards a full-blown conflict. There are clear echoes of Syria in 2011. There, too, we saw peaceful protests met with unnecessary and clearly disproportionate force. The state's brutal, persistent repression of its own people led to some individuals taking up arms, followed by a downward and rapidly expanding spiral of violence all across the country. The democratic hopes and aspirations of the Burmese people had soared over the past decade as popular politician Aung San Suu Kyi was released from prison and allowed to share power with the armed forces. And her party, the NLD, gained in strength, winning last November's elections, which the generals then overturned. There was a fraudulent election. The military is trying to put a real election, a fair election together, which includes all the minorities. 10 million voters did not get to vote due to the fact that the NLD-run election commission did not allow them. But Myanmar's military isn't known for its support of minorities or its willingness to hold elections, although recently it had travelled a short way down that electoral road. So why has the army decided to reverse on that democratic progress? Who are the generals willing to attack their own citizens? What is the future for Myanmar? We've been reporting on the protests in Myanmar since the coup and these have continued despite the rising levels of violent force that have been deployed against the people by the military. So on today's Real Story, we want to focus not on those brave protesters, but on the faceless generals. Let's meet the panel who are going to help us to get to know or understand that army. Eamon Tant is a Burmese-American journalist. Welcome to The Real Story, A. How would you describe the military or the Tatmadaw, as it's called locally? Thank you for having me. You know, you can really see the military as an institution that takes young men and oftentimes children and turn them into weapons for the state to carry out military goals, whether that is the dominance of the military within Myanmar politics, the essentially internal colonization of Myanmar by the largely Burma ethnic group-led generals, and against the populace as well when they revolt against uh, military domination of the country. And it's an institution which is deeply divided between these elite generals at the top and 
these young soldiers, many of whom entered the military as children who often had no other choices economically or had nowhere else to go. And I think a really good example of this earlier in the protest where uh, we saw soldiers essentially stealing food uh, from street vendors. They were stealing tea, they were stealing fairly cheap items, and they seemed quite hungry. Many of them, despite being soldiers, are very skinny. And, you know, there's been tell for years of these kids essentially being undernourished as a tactic to make them more aggressive when they go out to face whoever their enemies may be. So an army that uh, captures its soldiers, if you like, or encourages its soldiers to join at a very young age... An interesting and important observation. Let's meet our second panellist. Wei Nin is a Burmese human rights activist working at the Burma campaign here in the UK. Thank you for joining us on The Real Story, Wei Nin. Give us your description of the military. Uh, thank you for having me. Burmese military, or Tamador, like to think themselves as a guardian of the country, guardian of the unity and guardian of the whole national sovereignty. But in fact, it's an institution designed uh, to oppress people in the country for the past 70 years, especially ethnic minorities. And it has the propaganda and ideology of the Burman Buddhist majority nationalism running down to the court. So it's an institution designed to oppress anyone who speak out against them. That's fascinating. We're beginning to build a picture of, of how integrated it is within the country and the way in which the military's tentacles spread far and wide. Let's meet our third panellist. Mary Callahan is Associate Professor of International Studies at the Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington. She's been studying Myanmar's military for three decades. Mary Callahan, how would you encapsulate the military? I would say that it's demonstrably out of touch with the kinds of changes that have occurred in at least the central Buddhist Bama heartlands over the last 10 years. It is still the same military it has been since the 1950s. It's a war-fighting military with an officer corps basically wrangling other ranks to do their bidding against the citizenry who it views as enemies. The brutality then coming through very clearly in that description. We'll explore the historical power of the military in Myanmar in a moment. But let's think a bit more about who those key players are then today. The coup leader is a man called Min Aung Hlaing. A, what do we know about him? We actually don't know as much about him as we often do about these sorts of leaders. He essentially ascended to his role fairly recently, and this happened during a reshuffling of power as Myanmar was transitioning into elected quasi-civilian rule in 2010. And, you know, he had a reputation of someone who was sort of quiet but forgettable, uh, at least in any sort of meeting room, although he did have a reputation for brutality on the battlefield and was well-known within the military as being someone who had carried out some fairly brutal campaigns over the course of his career. And, you know, we do know that he has had presidential ambitions for years. The sort of media coverage that the military media, as well as sort of 
kind of state arms of propaganda had been promoting of him really showed him as not a military leader, but as a future potential president. He, he has a rude nickname, though. Uh, yes, uh, given to him by his colleagues in the military of essentially uh, cat feces, uh, but, you know, a ruder version of that, basically implying that he is someone who, you know, comes relatively quietly, but leaves a lingering presence. Uh, that's quite unpleasant. <laughs> Hmm, cat poo. Uh, Wayne in Mary began to allude to the brutality of the military. It's something that you have very personal experience of, personal experience of how the military operates. My dad is a, a pro-democracy activist and uh, he was arrested for the third time this February. And this time he was arrested by five soldiers. In the past, when he was arrested, it was by military intelligence or at least uh, plainclothes people. But this time my mom was saying it was very scary, but it was quite peaceful in a way compared to other people you know, military nightly go to their houses arresting and grabbing people. And if they can't find someone they want to arrest, they're arresting family members. So all these atrocities continue on as we are speaking now. Mary, you talked about how, in a way, the, the society is alienated from the military. And we also heard about how it's often young, poor people who join up that difference between the very top and the rank and file, how significant is that, do you think? I think it's probably quite significant. So officers get promoted based on, number one, uh, their combat experience, but they also have to demonstrate that they can keep the, what are called other ranks, the foot soldiers, in line And then the third thing they have to do is recruit. And that is really hard. Prior to 1988, when there was a crackdown in Myanmar, the army was actually considered a venerated institution. But after it slaughtered people in the streets all over the country in 1988, it became the object of great concern and criticism. And so it's not easy to recruit foot soldiers. A recent defector just gave an interview recently in which he said, we basically pay brokers to go out and find us people we can put into uniforms. And you see these foot soldiers like both my colleagues have talked about around the country. And often they don't have very good shoes. They don't have very good uniforms. They don't have food. They don't have very much. And so it's actually a brittle institution, but it has been arguably for 60 or 70 years. And it is well, the just, only institution in the country that has stayed together. Let's just think about that history a little bit more. It's a complicated one and one that was greatly influenced by the events of the Second World War. Of the war in Burma, these pictures show Burmese and Indian troops under cover of entrenched riflemen making an approach to the town of Shuegin to recapture it after Japanese occupation. Across the Sitang River, these men who are fighting so gallantly alongside British troops embark on sampans and bamboo rafts to be ferried over to the township in which is lurking the rear guard of the evacuating Japanese. 
That's British Pathé reporting back in 1942. The Japanese were defeated and Burma won independence from the British Empire, but almost immediately there were internal battles taking in the communists and the ethnic Karen. In 1962, the military seized power and under General Ne Win formed a single-party state. In the years which followed, there was a consolidation of power, but a number of regional insurgencies also flared and periodically there were anti-government riots. But throughout, as we've already been hearing, the military kept its grip on power. Now that's a really brief sketch and it doesn't even begin to take in the nuance of the story. But Mary Callahan, the fact that the military were crucial to the birth of the nation and that Aung San Suu Kyi's father, Aung San, was the leader of that independence movement, how crucial was that to embedding it into the sort of national psyche almost? It was very important up until Aung San Suu Kyi appeared on the scene in 1988 and 1989 when she returned to the country to nurse her ailing mother. Until that point, Aung San was considered really, I think, the only unimpeachable national hero. People grew up on Aung San. He was all over the money, the currency. And the fact that she looked so much like him, like the eyes, nose, and mouth, was extremely significant for the Myanmar population. And initially, at least, uh, the army appeared to be socialist in its ideology back in the 60s. Does it have a clear ideology now? It has no ideology other than a Buddhist Bama nationalism that largely views the country as one of the only places in the world where there is purity among Theravada Buddhists and as a country that is constantly under threat. I mean, remember, this is a little country in between two giants, China and India. And Wayne, in there have been insurgencies against the military for years. Who's the army fighting? So Burma was put together on a map by the British Empire. Before that, it was a separate entities with their own freedom and their own kingdoms. And if we look at modern day Burma now, we have a lot of culture, traditions and languages. But those minorities rights and minorities languages have been sidelined by the Burmese military or the Burmese authority ever since the independence. So of course, uh, Karen uh, started fighting for autonomy and there are other ethnic groups follow. So ever since then, we have a lot of civil wars going on. And the Burmese military use that. They say they are the only one that can keep the country together from breaking apart. And we grow up in city area thinking our ethnic brothers and sisters as rebels trying to break up the country. And one other really important feature then, Eamon, this is a country that is Buddhist. What is the relationship between the Buddhist monks and the military? So I think it goes back to what Mary was saying about how the army really sees Myanmar as one of the last places on earth uh, that is preserving the purity of Buddhism. And the military has a number of monks who, you know, they really venerate, who are also well venerated by the public. And these are monks who have generally stayed fairly apolitical. You know, that's why in 2007, the military became so 
uh, scared and reacted so strongly uh, during that popular uprising because it was led by monks. And for a very long time, you know, a large number of monks in Myanmar had either been silent on the topic of the military or were actively supported by and in turn supported the military and really adopted the idea that Myanmar is facing existential threats from Mm. uh, Muslims, from globalization, from the West, uh, you know, who pick an enemy, and that the military, while they may not agree with everything they do, is an institution that does protect Myanmar from some of these influences as they saw them. So we're getting a sense of what the military represents within the country. But it is interesting to also think about what the West does or doesn't understand about the role of the military in Myanmar. Andy Hine uh, was British ambassador to Myanmar a decade ago when Aung San Suu Kyi was released from house arrest. He's now an honorary professor at the Senator George Mitchell Institute at Queen's University in Belfast. I asked him when it became clear to him that the armed forces were serious about, at the very least, the appearance of democratic reforms. Well, initially, there was, it felt like nothing was happening. So she was released towards the end of 2010 and through the early, really about six months of 2011, there was very, very little going on that suggested there was anything other than just allowing her to be out of house arrest. So that was good. And she was allowed visitors and people were able to come and see her. But she seemed to have no contact with the military at all. So it was almost like you can be released, but you're just going to be sidelined. But then they did reach out to her around the summer of 2011. And that was a really interesting moment because she called me and my American and French colleagues in to see her at her house in University Avenue. And she asked us to brief our governments and groups back in our respective countries that the military had reached out to her. She didn't know if this was a false step and that this was just window dressing, but she was of the view that it might be more than that. So she asked us to try to ensure that the reaction back, in my case, in the UK, was not to dismiss these talks as another attempt to pull the wool over people's eyes by the military, but instead actually just don't say anything about it. Just say, okay, well, we'll see how they go. And that turned out to be the beginning of the process that led to the opening up, which really gathered pace through the latter half of 2011 and then into 2012. There was, though, always an accommodation with the military as that process kind of unfolded. How do you think Aung San Suu Kyi and the NLD handled that? Did they understand what they were up against? Or were they perhaps as naive as, as we might say the rest of the world now was? No, I don't think they were naive. I mean, I, I spoke a lot to Aung San Suu Kyi at this time and our NLD colleagues, and they took the view that there was a chance that this would be the real thing, even with the restrictions that the military had placed. As you all know, they drafted a constitution that retained 25% of the parliament for military placemen. They blocked her being able to become the president and they'd retained key jobs for military figures. So she knew all that, but she thought that the people I'm talking to do appear to be sincere. So this is a gamble worth trying. And frankly, up until this coup, it looked like that gamble had paid off. You know, we had the free and fair elections in 2015. And then, again, the elections were run in a free and fair way in 2020. And, well, we all know what happened on the 1st of February to turn that around. But I don't think she was naive about it. I think she knew there was a risk, 
but she thought this was a risk worth running. But at the time that that constitution was written and publicly declared, many people raised questions about whether the military was serious about giving up power. Mm. What was the motivation, do you think, of any kind of change at that time? Because they clearly weren't entirely serious about giving up power. The economy was in a desperate state. Without China's economic, not to mention diplomatic backing, the Burmese economy would have fallen apart. I think also, as part of their membership of ASEAN, ministers have started to travel and seen countries that Myanmar had probably considered itself to be more advanced than were straight, you know, racing ahead of Burma. And they probably saw enough to make them realize what a backwater in terms of the economy Myanmar had become. I think there was also frustration at the country's pariah status. You know, that had been going on. You'll be aware of all the sanctions regimes that were in place. So I think there was a sense of a whole range. There were other factors too, but these are just a few of the ones that were talked about, that there was a thought, well, could we move out of this? But they clearly hedged their bets, and they hedged their bets not only in what they did with the constitution, but we now know that some members of the military were hedging their bets to the point that, well, you know, if this doesn't go the way that we want, we'll just reverse this whole thing. That's Andy Hine, who served as the UK ambassador to Myanmar between 2009 and 2013. And we'll hear a little bit more from him later. Mary Callaghan, do you think the West has historically overestimated its ability to influence the generals? Significantly. Um, I think the West in the early 1990s was guilty of a problematic analogy. There was an assumption that the West could wield sanctions in the way that transformed South Africa in the early 1990s and bring about the collapse of military rule. And instead, what sanctions did was lead to a massive transformation of the economy into one that was dominated by rent-seeking cronies who were associated with military officers and Chinese and regional investment. And so there's been this narrative that the West, led by the United Nations in some form, was going to bring democracy uh, to Myanmar. And in fact, the electoral process that Aung San Suu Kyi agreed in August of 2011 in her meeting with then-President Thein Sein, that electoral process came from a military constitution that was rendered from a position of military strength, not from yielding to sanctions. We'll pick up this conversation in just a moment. But first, a quick reminder that if you have a look back in our podcast feed, you'll find our discussion last week exploring the ongoing conflict between Ukraine and Russian-backed separatists in the country's east. Over recent weeks, Russia's deployed additional forces to the region and Ukraine's renewed its request to join the NATO military alliance. This sets up the prospect of a proxy face-off between East and West, three decades on from the end of the Cold War. But is a renewed conflict in the interests of either side? And if not, how could an escalation in violence be avoided? That was our show last week. And remember that if you're new to the podcast, do subscribe to the feed so you'll never miss an edition. But back now to our conversation this week about another conflict, this time the one unfolding in Myanmar. 
We're joined by Burmese-American journalist Amin Tant, by Wei Nin, a Burmese human rights activist here in the UK, and Mary Callahan from the University of Washington. Earlier in the programme, we sort of built up a picture of some of the people in the military, its historical place in uh, Burma's development. I want, in a sense now, to look at the current events that are unfolding in Myanmar. Since that coup on February the 1st, there have been mass protests against the military action and Aung San Suu Kyi and members of her National League for Democracy Party are among those who've been detained. Hundreds of people, including children, have been killed. Clarissa Ward recently reported from inside Myanmar. She's chief international correspondent for CNN and author of the book On All Fronts, The Education of a Journalist. I caught up with her and she told me about her experience. We entered Myanmar with the permission of the military, which meant that essentially we were under their control. Uh, We had wanted to stay in a hotel in Yangon where we spent our first three days. We were told no, we were to stay in a military compound. This was a compound with very high walls and, and the gates were shut unless we left with the military escorts who really accompanied our every move. On the first day on the ground, we actually had six trucks full of soldiers who went everywhere with us. In addition to that, we had a handful of minders. Then we also had plainclothes security forces who were really just filming absolutely everything we did on their iPhones. And they were the ones who became, frankly, the most oppressive from my perspective, because even if I was going to the bathroom, wherever I was, they were right behind me or right in front of me. Um, And after a while, that, that does start to feel a little bit claustrophobic. And how did that affect your ability to interact with ordinary citizens, people in Myanmar who have been protesting? So essentially, our assumption going in was that we wouldn't be able to interact with ordinary people from Myanmar. We had been told we would be allowed to report independently on the ground. But, you know, this wasn't our first rodeo. A lot of us have been to Syria, North Korea, Iran, and other places where where you understand that there are controls placed on your movement and that you have to be very cautious about who you interact with on the ground because you are being followed and you are being watched. What was extraordinary to see, however, was that once word was out there that CNN was on the ground, the ordinary people of Myanmar, and I'm not talking about activists and protesters, I'm talking even just about ordinary people, became absolutely hell-bent on trying to find us, trying to seek us out, and trying to get their voices heard uh, because they're so desperate for the outside world, not only to have a better understanding of what's going on in Myanmar, but to be much more engaged with this issue. And yet those people, by even approaching you, were putting themselves in danger. They were. And, you know, so what happened, we went to a market and we... We started filming just, you know, people buying and selling their wares. And within a few minutes, a man puts up the three finger, the so-called Hunger Games salute, which has really become the sort of symbol of defiance or resistance against the military coup. And then he approached us and started talking to us. And we said, listen, you can see we're surrounded by security forces. This is dangerous for you. And then another man came up to us. And then the people in the market started banging pots and pans. And for a moment... There was no sound in this market other than the banging of pots and pans. And there were old women and young. Everyone was just banging these pots and pans. And then more and more people came up and talked to us. And at that stage, we said, "Okay, listen, we don't want this situation to escalate. So we left the market. 
Now, it was a deeply unfortunate consequence of these people's bravery that they were detained directly after speaking to us. And so we spent quite a lot of time lobbying with the junta, pressing the the general who we interviewed in particular until uh, they were released. And we continue to be in touch with them to make sure that, that they're safe and that they're OK. You had this interaction with a very senior military official. What was that like? What was he like? I mean, the whole thing was so surreal. It was it. The interview was held in this vast, vast hall with sort of portraits of all the great generals of the Myanmar military adorning the walls and marble floors and golden busts. I mean, really sort of over the top, overbearing um, scenario. And he was quite stoic in the face of definitely some very, very tough questioning. I mean, we were, you know, the whole reason in our minds that this trip was worth it and was important to do despite the restrictions was that we were going to hold feet to the fire. We were going to confront the senior military leadership with evidence of its crimes and brutality. And I think we really did do that. Well, there was one particular moment when you showed him a video of the military essentially shooting an activist who was cycling mm. along the road. What was the response? Yeah, I mean, it was extraordinary because the video shows uh, a young man on a bicycle, a 17-year-old. He is cycling past a police car. The police shoot him in cold blood. He drops dead. And the parents were told a few days later in the autopsy that he'd been killed in a cycling accident. And so I said to the General Zalmanton, I said, I think we can all see that this is not a cycling accident. And he sort of looked a little bit perplexed, but said, oh, well, we will have to investigate this. And, you know, many of these videos are fakes, but if it's true, we will certainly look into it. And our security forces are not targeting innocent or unarmed people, um, which, you know, we all know that to be uh, preposterous. And we continue to push him on that point. But the narrative that the military has latched onto, and which they are definitely sticking to, is that the protesters are a violent mob of anarchists who are preventing this political plan, for which would allow for elections within two years to to take place. And that's their story, and they're sticking to it. Clarissa Ward from CNN. Wayne, in the brutality of the military isn't in any doubt. But why do you think the politicians failed to make a clean break? Why did Aung San Suu Kyi remain closely aligned with the military? I think we all have to uh, go back to the 2008 constitution. I think the wall was getting carried away when the military decided to have a first civilian election in 2010. But there were all warning signs and we were telling that we were warning the international community that no, Burma will never have genuine democracy or peace or reconciliation under this 2008 constitution because the military made sure to hold on enough power and somehow introduce democratic reform. So when we had the release of Aung San Suu Kyi and other high-profile activists, the West really thought that Burma was going towards democracy. And of course, even you know, activists themselves believe that if they 
work within the system, if they come under the constitution and join the parliament, they might be able to change the constitution from the inside. So we have two groups of activists inside the country, activists and politicians. One who wants to join the parliament, who wants to take part in the election and change the constitution from within, and the other activists who believe everything we have to work for is to abolish the 2008 constitution and establish federal democracy. So now we are in this mess. A, I wonder if you agree with that. And also, can you explain why the army even decided to toy with democracy in the first place? Yeah, I would really like to take it back to the question you asked about what the West got wrong. And I think part of difficulty of extracting the military from Myanmar politics has been in part the way in which Western governments and organizations essentially threw their support into the peace process in Myanmar and kind of uncritically began to support government institutions that were really still military institutions. So, you know, I think there's been quite a lot of people being very vocal in their criticism about the EU funding training for the police. You know, in theory, the training was meant to ensure that the police had crowd control methods that were less lethal. But in reality, you know, it's an institution that is still entirely controlled by the military. It's an institution where it's people who are allowed to shoot civilians. And, um, you know, they've in part through the funding that they were able to get, uh, were able to buy all of these toys like water cannons and other sort of less than lethal projectiles that have been harming and killing people. Mary, why do you think, given its hold on power, that the army chose to toy with democracy at all? Probably about seven or eight years before President Thainsing was inaugurated in March 2011, there developed this notion of a backward-looking roadmap to what the former head of military intelligence, General Kenyon, called the roadmap to discipline flourishing democracy. So there was this idea that had been developing among the senior ranks that there could be some kind of hybrid model. And so the outgoing commander-in-chief and deputy commander-in-chief left power and held an election in November 2010. And the outgoing head of the junta put in who he thought was arguably the weakest, the senior generals, into the presidency. Now, that president ended up being informed by some senior officers who, like Ambassador Hines said, had done a lot of traveling in the region and realized how badly Mima had fallen behind. And so right from day one, that president was committed to reform. And within the first few months, he released 2,000 political prisoners. He shut down the censorship board. He established a channel for private daily media. And there was this sense that things had probably gone much farther very quickly. So there was some sort of miscalculation, potentially. A couple of things then I'd like to clarify that really fascinate me about the role of Aung San Suu Kyi in all of this. 
you all agree, I think, that the military is unpopular. But in the West, there are a lot of people that were very shocked that uh, there appeared to be little public or political support for the Rohingya and the fact that they were forced to flee from a kind state after the crackdown. How do you explain that, Wayne In How is there this, on the one hand, hatred of the military, but an alignment on an issue which in the West is seen as horrific? If we look at Burma, there are two visions of Burma that people want. One is Burma with Burman Buddhist majority and other ethnic minorities and religious minorities in it. Or do we want a Burma with everyone with equality and equal values? So if we look at the Rohingya issue, it shows that the Burman nationalism and Buddhist nationalism inside the country is so strong. And of course, you know, after this coup, it's encouraging to see some sort of unity and some sort of voices coming, speaking out for the Rohingya minority. But we need to recognize that the hatred and prejudice against Muslims and particularly Rohingya Muslims in my country is really deeply rooted in my society. So, you know, even though, you know, a lot of people argue that, oh, Aung San didn't have the political power to speak out and stop genocide against the Rohingya, she had the moral duty to speak out against the genocide, but she didn't. And she went to The Hague even to defend the military, which was mind boggling for a lot of people. A, I wonder if that was a really significant moment that it could have emboldened the military in some sense. They realised that Aung San Suu Kyi's failure to support the Rohingya had weakened her internationally. And perhaps that was a moment to make a move. That's definitely an argument that's been made by a number of people, including senior foreign ministers from the Philippines, as well as sort of other ASEAN leaders. You know, I think Aung San Suu Kyi had kind of this very charmed presence on the global stage. For a very long time, she was one of the very few Burmese voices that Western leaders were looking to uh, in terms of what they should do about Myanmar. And, you know, seeing her lose that backing may have in part emboldened the generals. But I think if we look at the timing of the coup, as well as the sort of criticisms that the military was making ahead of the coup. So this was before the election. This They were talking about how the NLD, under the NLD, you know, economic development had not happened as quickly as it could have. They were talking about the NLD government's sort of failed COVID response. And so, you know, I don't think this was the main catalyst, but it couldn't have helped her. And I should say that ASEAN is a, an organisation, a grouping of Southeast Asian states. Mary Callahan, a lot has been said about the way in which the military has controlled the media in Myanmar. How important was that in terms of how it could influence public opinion? And could you argue that it may perhaps also have overestimated its ability to control the population, judging by the sort of protests we've seen over the last two months? I think you have to understand that the commander-in-chief over the last 10 years, in general, is very much out of touch with what's going on in the country. He makes visits to different parts of the country, but they're all curated, right? So I would guess that over the last few years, he's been attending quarterly meetings with his regional commanders who reported people in their areas of operations all over the country 
complaining about their NLD members of parliament, complaining about how the NLD hadn't delivered on the peace process, complaining about the lack of economic development, and especially over the last year, complaining about the lack of support to people who had lost everything in the COVID contraction. And so I suspect that when he launched this coup, he expected people to see this as him providing a steadying hand. And he likely would have been told by his regional commanders that the NLD wasn't going to win big this time. So cheating in the election would be the only explanation for Mm. what came out of that election. But A, if I can come back to this use of the media and control of the media, how important has that been for the way in which the military has bolstered its image? And is that ability to control vast sections of the media beginning to falter now, judging by the protests we've seen since February the 1st? So I think something that we've really come to realize in the days following the coup is just how much, as Mary Callahan was just saying, the military really bought into a lot of the things they were saying. You know, you see it in the rest as well as the sort of shock with which the military has seemed to had about the public's reception to the coup. You know, you see them arresting seemingly random people who have been the subject of online conspiracies about the NLD working closely with Facebook in order to censor the military, to try and deplatform soldiers, military pages, and all these things. So, you know, the military has really retreated during the NLD years, officially at least, to the military paper, Miawadi, as well as putting out movies about the military and sort of trying to create military-created media as a way to change public perception about their role in the country. And we also saw this sort of very coordinated disinformation campaign where military officers were spreading hate speech, they were spreading disinformation. And right now we're seeing a situation in which the military essentially controls all media in the country. There's no more privately owned print media running. It's just military papers and, you know, maybe one or two pamphlets and other things that the civil disobedience movement has been able to put out. The military controls the radio and the military controls the TV. And so after having cut the internet, they're really in a position to control what people know. And yet what we're seeing is that Mm. they can't. People know that the military can see their text. They know who they're calling and can listen. And yet they're continuing to spread information and get information to uh, journalists. So media control we've talked about. Weighing in something we touched a bit when we were talking about sanctions, but I just want to spell out more clearly, the military is a massively powerful economic force. Just give us a sense of that. So after the civilian election, what they made sure is that they are in charge or in control of the mining, oil and gas and other industries in the country. And they make sure that they have financial independence as a a tamador. Burma is a very wealthy country with uh, very many uh, natural resources. And they make sure that they are in control of that. A lot of the projects, a lot of the 
economic improvements are directly controlled by the military. And all the money they have, they keep putting into their defense budget rather than spending it on health and education. So, you know, now a lot of uh, campaigning and international organizations are asking for targeted and smart economic sanctions against military companies. Even protesters inside the country, they are boycotting military products. They are not buying military-owned alcohol or cigarettes or other military products that produce and you know, money going into the military. So because we know that all these money will be used by the military to buy more weapons to oppress us rather than helping to improve people's lives in the country. We've talked a bit then about the power of the military and how this relates to what the West can or can't do in terms of sanctions. There have been more sanctions since the February 1st coup. The US and the UK, I think, have sanctioned some of the key firms linked to the military. It's an approach, though, that's clearly controversial. It's rejected by uh, Myanmar's Asian neighbours. So what then can the West do? Let's just hear once more from Britain's former ambassador to Myanmar, Andy Hine. You know, when you're looking for the international community, then you really you start off really by looking at the UN, and the UN have tried to act on this, but they've been vetoed by Russia and China, and any meaningful action through the UN is likely to go the same way. So it is extremely difficult. I think there are things that can be done. I would want to see ASEAN isolate uh, Myanmar, and I'd want to see a coalition of the willing refuse to meet, for example, with ASEAN. And by this coalition for the willing. I'm talking about G7 countries, Japan, India, and so on, refusing to meet ASEAN if the Myanmar junta is represented in the room. But ultimately, the only way I think that this coup will fail is the continued resistance of the Myanmar people. China, making it clear they are not prepared to tolerate what the generals are doing, and or that there is an uprising within the military itself. That's uh, Andy Hine again. A, is ASEAN a useful group to lobby? Many people would say it doesn't do very much. And actually, isn't China the country that people really have to look to if there's going to be any change? ASEAN is extremely committed to the idea of non-interference. ASEAN was founded really as a trade bloc and as an institution, they would deeply prefer it if the world would stop going to them about political problems with their neighbors. And from what we've seen from ASEAN nations is that there is a desire to do something, but some of the efforts that we've seen have been, they, they seem to have fumbled it. You know, early in the coup, there were some nations that were very early on met with the military regime uh, to the derision and protest of people who were protesting the coup. Um, we've also had reporting that ASEAN has proposed terms to the generals in terms of the sort of compromises that the generals might make in order to allow an election sooner rather than later, or you know, a new constitution perhaps even. And these are things that are just not going to be tolerated by the Myanmar public, especially the sort of backsliding. So, so a potentially lim of limited use. I wonder, Wayne, in if the shadow of Syria then looms large, an uprising against a government that's widespread, but actually fails to change very much in the end. People in Burma are very courageous. They keep going out on the street protesting, but we now have more than 700 people died because they've been killed by the Burmese military. But 
this figure doesn't include people who've been killed in ethnic area because the fighter jets are bombing ethnic civilians in Karen state and Kachin state. So uh, the number of death is uh, rising in the country. And if the situation continues, there would be more death and there will be more arrest. Even today, one of my closest friends was arrested. So... Of course, we know that this is our own struggle and we will win our own freedom inside the country. People are very persistent. People are very determined. They are fighting for it. But at the same time, we are asking the international community to help in the way that they can. But the frustrating thing is that we are not seeing anything other than statements from them. Mm, Well, we are almost out of time. So I really want to pick up on that last point and think briefly about what the next 12 months then may hold. Mary Callahan, I am really concerned that the escalation to the use of air power against civilians in Karen State on March 27th, as well as in Kachin State over the last four days, that represents a very worrying move by the military. It suggests the military is willing to bring all of its combat weaponry to bear upon putting down this resistance. You're not optimistic. Wayne in. what do you think the next 12 months may hold? I like to be optimistic. I like to be hopeful. But at the same time, I feel that this is a very long journey and People are, you know, very determined that we want to get rid of the military once and for all. So as much as I like to be optimistic, I think it's going to be a very long and very hard journey for all of us. Amen, Tant. I would have to agree with my colleague. Um, I also like to be optimistic. And, you know, I think what we're seeing in Myanmar right now is a full-blown revolution, not just of sort of people in the streets, but really in terms of ideas, of, of a vision of a fully equal society in which everyone in Myanmar has a place and can achieve justice. But I think in the short and middle term, we're going to see a lot of suffering, uh, not just from the military really using every weapon at its disposal, but a lot of people suffering from the economic harm that's going to come out of this protracted conflict. Well, there you have some really interesting verdicts on what the future may be in Myanmar. That's it for this week on The Real Story. Thank you so much to our guests, journalist Eamon Tant, Wei Nin from the Burma campaign, Mary Callahan from the University of Washington. And if you have any suggestions for future deep dive topics you think we should cover, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Rittler. But for this week, from me, Rittler Shah and the whole team, that's The Real Story. Thank you for your company and do join us again next time.